Hello, it's Tuesday, 6 p.m., which means it's Gradcast. Gradcast is here to bring Western's research to you guys as the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students. My name is Navneet, and I am host number two tonight. My name is Yemin Chen. How are you doing, Nav? Pretty good, Yemin. Glad to have the summer back. Ha! Huh. This is like the first sunny day we've had in a while, but we also have a very sunny guest today, and his name is Dixon Wong. How are you doing, Dixon? I'm doing great. Oh, excellent! So you're in a kind of very special, very unique, very exclusive program here at Western. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm one of the crazies that went into the MD PhD program. So that's a program that you know uh, y- you you train to become a clinician scientist. So you get a little bit of research training with your PhD, and you get medical school training as well. So what some might say, I'd call a doctor, doctor, or a dub- double doctor. A <laughs> double doctor, yeah. So no matter w- when someone yells, "Is there a doctor in the house?" You can say mm. yes. Fact, uh, yeah, you can count me twice. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> How many doctors do we have in the room? We have two. Exactly. Both Dixon. All right. So, yeah. can you tell us a little bit about this pro uh, this program you're in? Um, so the 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 program takes in you know students from a variety of backgrounds, um, and uh, the the point of the program is really to to train someone that can work in the space between. You know the research and the clinic. So, the idea is to to train clinician scientists. And what clinician scientists do is they they look at their patient population and and um, they look at those problems that are are in those patient populations. And then they have the research skills and the training to answer any questions or to follow up on those problems and to tackle those problems that they see. Um, so what they're really doing is they're bringing problems from the clinic into the lab. Um, they're doing research in the lab, and they're bringing solutions back into the clinic, um, and that's called translational research. Um, and and that uh, that is a way to you know make research more uh, practical and more efficient, and to really get you know um, science to to have an impact or a more immediate impact on a patient population. So you're sort of taking your experiences and what you're seeing on the front lines, working, providing medical care to patients, and using that information to direct like a research agenda for what might be most pressing, what might be most useful in like day-to-day medical practice. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm not doing that right now because right, I'm still in training, but hopefully one day I'll be able to, you know, work and play in that space. So what's the patient population that? You are keen on working with. Uh, well, I am quite interested in the brain, um, mm-hmm. and uh, the research that I do now as part of my PhD is involved with you know imaging of the brain um, and looking at the brain. Um, so I'd like to eventually maybe work as a neurologist or or mm-hmm. a psychiatrist, but you know don't quote me on that. That's a few know. years down <laughs> the road, and things might change. Who knows? We never know what what way grad school takes us. Exactly. I don't even know what I'm doing next week. <laughs> so, that aside, though, so you're doing your research portion first in this program. That's right. 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 So there's there's two, you know, streams that you can go into. 
Um, one is you do two years of medical school and then three years of your PhD and then another two years of medical school. Or you can do um, three years of your PhD first and then go into medical school and do four years. Um, so I chose to do the three, four instead of the two, three, two. And you're at the end of this first three year. Yes, portion. I am in my third year of my PhD. I'm trying to wrap it up. And, you know, that's a little bit tough, but I, I think I can do it. Cool. Right. A PhD in three years. Good yeah, it's a, it's a little nuts, but, you know, right. oh, I impressive. signed up. <laughs> so anyway, um, let's, I want to talk more about your research now. Mm-hmm. You said imaging of the brain. Right. So, so um, uh, I, I work with the high field MRI machines at the Robarts Research Institute, and um, we image the brain um, and in order to, you know, figure out um, what goes on in disease. And the particular disease that I look at uh, with my research is Alzheimer's disease. Um, and I use different techniques with the MRI machine, like diffusion tensor imaging or magnetic resonance spectroscopy. Um, and with those techniques, we can look at the structure and the chemistry of the brain and, and see what's happening in Alzheimer's disease. Okay, so MRI machines, those are those really big futuristic looking things you see in like medical TV shows. It's like a, a giant mm-hmm. sort of donut with a bed that goes into the hole. Yeah. 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 That's and you exactly take what all it is. your jewelry before you get in there. Yeah, right. So. Or it kills you. Super powerful magnets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so these MRI machines, uh they're they're magnetic resonance imaging. You you use these to take images of, of people's brains? How does that work? Um well yeah, we can use that to take uh, images of people's brains. Um, and, and the way that works actually is, you know, uh, in your brain, um, there's a lot of different molecules and a lot of different atoms. And what mm-hmm. the MRI machine really looks at is the hydrogen atoms. Okay. Um, so these hydrogen atoms, you can imagine like little bar magnets that maybe you used to play with as a kid. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have a bajillion of these in your brain um, uh, and in your tissue and in your body. Um and in the MRI machine, all of these little bar magnets, these hydrogen atoms, mm-hmm. line up with that magnetic field. So positive and negative, different uh, sides. Yeah, you can look at it like that. Yeah, so, okay. um, and then what we do is we you know, inject some radio signals, actually, and we disturb the, the hydrogen atoms from this alignment. Mm-hmm. And as they come back into alignment, they give off radio signals that we can then measure. And from those radio signals, we can, you know, uh, on on this program, you're, mm-hmm. these signals you're recreating sound from radio signals, right? Mm-hmm. So we can recreate images, and uh, or we can recreate you know chemical spectrums or o- other kinds of data from these signals. In a way, so, is it almost like a, a a sort of sonar? You're pinging something, and then you get a reflection back to sort of tell where things are. Uh, a little bit like right. that. Uh, yeah. I just saw it's a hunt for Red October, so it's like not that an sort exact of on my mind. <laughs> yeah, it's not an exact analogy, but you right. can think about it like that. Cool. We're injecting some radio signals um, into a sample that's in a magnetic field, and we're mm-hmm. getting radio signals back, and then we do some fancy math with those radio signals, and we can convert them into images and into chemical mm-hmm. spectra. So you said spectra. That's mm-hmm. that. So that's not exactly an image, but it gives you an idea of what's the composition. Yes, of exactly. Inside the, of the brain. Yes. So it, it gives uh, a, a spectrum will give us an idea of the chemical composition within the brain. Mm-hmm. So without um, really having to cut open the brain and 
put right. it through a blender and then <laughs> exactly <laughs> this so. usually kills the the patient so <laughs> it, it, it provides us a way of um, measuring the brain chemistry without actually taking a sample from the participant so we okay. don't have to take any brain tissue we can just use the magnetic uh, or the MRI machine um, and look at the chemistry with the machine non-invasively mm-hmm. um, and yeah it's a spectrum you know I, I don't know if the listeners might uh, know what a spectrum is, but um, you can think of like a sound signal, like what mm-hmm. you're listening to now. You know those sound waves that you see? Um, those waves contain different frequencies, right? Mm-hmm. And those different frequencies correspond to like the different pitches and tones in the sound. Um, so when we receive radio signals back, we get a similar looking um, wave of data. And okay. within that wave of data, it's like a sound wave, there's different frequencies. And okay. those different frequencies correspond to the different hydrogens that are attached to the different molecules in your brain. Hmm. So by looking at that data and looking at the frequency information, we can, you know, uh, just like in a sound, you can identify the different pitches, we can identify the different chemicals. Or oh, just to give another analogy, it's like looking at a rainbow uh-huh. where you have different colors, but... Mm-hmm. Maybe in this rainbow, you have the red that's brighter than the other colors. Right. Whereas in another rainbow, you'd have the um, the yellow that's brighter than right. the other colors. So if you have these two rainbows, then you could g- get an idea of what was the chemical composition behind these rainbows. Right. So like the red of a rainbow might correspond mm-hmm. to a molecule, say like glutamate, right? Okay. So if you have a brighter red or uh, we have a stronger glutamate signal, then mm-hmm. th- we know there's more glutamate in the brain um, or in the region of the brain that we're looking at. Okay. Um, so then if we have two populations, right? Like you said, if we're looking at two rainbows and one has a brighter red than the other, um, the same way if we're looking at two um, brains and one has more of a glutamate signal than the other, mm-hmm then we know there's more of that molecule in that brain of that particular participant than another participant. And I understand glutamate is something significant for the brain? Uh, yeah, so that's actually a pretty interesting molecule. So um, glutamate is called an excitatory neurotransmitter. That's the fancy word for it. But right. really what that is is um, when one brain cell talks to another, um, the the brain cell that wants to send a message will send chemicals out into the synapse, so the connection between the brain cells. And then the other um, brain cell that's receiving the message, right, they'll have receptors that takes in those chemicals, and those receptors will then trigger uh, more signaling down the line. And that's how a message gets passed along. Um, And that's called a neurotransmission, right, or or, um, basically messaging between brain cells Mm -hmm. and that chemical that's passed between brain cells uh, a lot of uh, the connections in your brain use glutamate for that that chemical Um, so by measuring glutamate we can get some information about um, how well your brain cells are communicating or how many connections there are between brain cells and in general sort of how healthy your brain cells are because typically more healthy brain cells or if you have more brain cells, you have more connections and more communication that's happening. So would that be, um, would you be seeing more glutamate in that case or would would that be less because they're getting used up so quickly? Um, So 
in the in the context of Alzheimer's disease, mm-hmm. right? Um, we actually see uh, lowered glutamate. Um, okay. Um, and you know, our lab has sort of published a paper showing that, and I've re- reproduced that finding with some of the research that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that decrease in glutamate, that could be, you know, a loss of some of those connections. So if you if you lose a connection, then overall um, you're um, using less glutamate or you need less glutamate to pass messages because you okay. have less connections. And if your neurons are dying out, right, just mm-hmm. overall you're going to have less glutamate because there's just less neurons. So it's sort of... Um, we've been using it as a measure of, you know, synaptic health, so how healthy the connections are or how many connections there are and um, as a measure of sort of neuronal um, loss, basically. So if if there's less neurons, there's less glutamate. So that's what that measure sort of means and how we interpret uh, that measurement, yeah. So you're actually working with, um, you know, live human subjects, right? Can you tell us a little bit more about what the process is in terms of um, your research and your experiments? Um, yeah. So um, in the particular study that I do, um, we're trying to look at people with different amounts of memory loss. Mm-hmm. Um, so we want to, you know, see if we can identify chemical changes that pertain to um people with uh, less memory loss or earlier process in the Alzheimer's disease um, progression. So if we can identify um, a chemical change that occurs earlier, that might be able to be used as an early biomarker of the disease. That's what we call it. Um, And that biomarker might be able to be used to, you know, predict what is the risk of a particular person uh, to uh, further have more memory loss or to convert into Alzheimer's disease. Um, but that's kind of far down the line, but that's the hope. Um, so that's what I'm doing with my study. And I have, you know, people with mild cognitive impairment, people with um, uh, that are likely to convert into Alzheimer's disease, um, and also people that have no memory loss at all. So that's the three groups of people that we're sort of looking at. Right. Can you tell us a little bit more about... Um how you can tell or how do you measure or how do you define these different stages of memory loss? Because, you know, sometimes I, I don't remember where I put my keys. Like, does should I be worried about cognitive <laughs> impairment or, or memory? Um, so memory loss that starts becoming a problem. Okay. Um, um, it, it's well, losing my loss. keys is a problem, <laughs> right? It's memory loss in excess of, you know, normal age-related memory loss. Okay. Um, and... Um, I get the patients um, directly from the physicians. Okay. Um, so they refer them to us, and I don't actually see uh, how they get diagnosed because of ethical concerns mm-hmm. um, or ethical restrictions. Um, so the 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 physicians um, attach a diagnosis uh, a diagnosis to the participants. Okay. Um, but they have guidelines, um, and they do clinical memory testing. Um, uh, to identify uh, whether or not someone has uh, mild cognitive impairment or probable Alzheimer's disease. And those criteria um, are sort of listed in the DSM. Um, okay, right. Which is the 
diagnostic statistical manual um, for um, psychologists and psychiatrists. Right. Um, and there's also other criteria that are defined, like the Peterson criteria, um, which looks at, oh, is your memory loss affecting the activities of your daily life um, and how severe is it affecting that? Or um, And they use that to sort of judge whether... Uh, or not you are in the MCI stage, the mild cognitive impairment stage, or the uh, prodromal Alzheimer's disease stage where you're, you're likely to convert into Alzheimer's disease or whether you're full-blown full Alzheimer's, yeah. So, yeah, so we're relating um, uh, psychological uh, measurements or, mm -hmm. or cognitive measurements um, that some of which are typically used in the clinic and some which are used in research, which we, we also uh, do with our participants. Um, and we're trying to relate that into a uh, chemical measurement that we could make using a machine. Um, and a chemical measurement allows you to measure the biology, right? So it, it it's a measurement that's more sensitive to the actual changes in the disease than mm -hmm. uh, a psychological measurement or right, a cognitive measurement, which is more abstract. Right. And oh, it's removed. more qualitative. Yeah, exactly. Yours is more quantitative. Exactly. You yeah. get to put numbers on it. I mean, okay, I, I'm not speaking in favor of math over here just because I'm a mathematician, but just saying, numbers yeah. rock. <laughs> but um, does it? When, when you're looking at a psychological issue and you're looking at the symptoms, it's often too late. When, you, when you're already showing symptoms of memory loss, it's often, it's already too late to be treating them. So is there, is there hope for people who are going to develop Alzheimer's, like you mentioned, like they could just be in the early stages of memory loss or they show risks of memory loss. So... Is it possible to detect Alzheimer's even before it sets in? So if we could better identify the people and um, uh, if we can better figure out who will be at risk for Alzheimer's disease mm -hmm. and who's more at risk than others, then um, and we can do that at an earlier stage, um, then we can intervene earlier, right? Um, so that's what we're trying to look for. We're trying to look for chemical changes or chemical markers or imaging markers that are uh, indicative of um, an earlier process in the disease. And if we can um, identify those markers, then we can use that to identify people that are um, at an earlier stage in the disease. Um, maybe we can use those markers to identify people before the cognitive tests can. Um, okay. And if we can do that early you know, screening or early mm -hmm. intervention, then we can um, treat these people earlier. Uh, and if we can treat these people earlier, we can delay the disease for a little bit longer. Um, or maybe the treatments would have more effectiveness, effectiveness at an earlier stage. Um, and, you know, when you're getting diagnosed at um, 60 years old, say, um, and you sh start showing symptoms of memory loss or, or we're identifying you at 60 to be like, okay, you might be at risk for Alzheimer's disease. And if we intervene then, then we can delay the disease by five to 10 years. That's a significant amount in the context of their remaining lifespan, right? That is right. So, 
So have you seen any uh, differences in sort of the brain chemistry composition between the different uh, stages of memory loss and, and impairment that you've looked at? You mentioned glutamate earlier. Is that one of them? Yeah, so that's our our main result, actually, is that okay. there's a decrease of glutamate in the hippocampus. Um, and the hippocampus is a region of the brain, um, which is, uh, it, it's part of a memory circuit. Um, and that's responsible for memory about facts and knowledge, um, which is declarative memory. Um, and it's also one of the first regions to get um, uh deteriorated in Alzheimer's disease. So we've seen a drop in glutamate there, um, and we've seen that difference between our uh, cognitively normal participants okay. and participants with mild cognitive impairment. Mm -hmm. And we've also seen the difference uh, between you know our uh, cognitively normal participants and our Alzheimer's disease participants. So because we're seeing a difference between our um, MCI participants and our normal participants, that is a sign that this could be an early change. Um, and we've related this measurement, you know, to uh, other measures that I mentioned earlier, like diffusion tensor imaging, and that actually looks at the physical connections, so your fibers that connect the different um, regions of the okay. brain. Uh -huh. And we see that if you have lower glutamate, you mm -hmm. tend to also have, you know, uh, fewer, fiber? fewer fibers okay. or less healthy fibers that mm -hmm. connect different regions of, uh, from the hippocampus to different regions of the brain. And this hippocampus and glutamates and such, is that, is that, I'm just curious, is that ubiquitous across all animals or is it just something special to humans? So the, the hippocampal structure, um, it's responsible for spatial memory um, and as I mentioned earlier, it's part of the declarative memory circuit. Um, and that sort of hippocampal structure is surprisingly uh, conserved across species. So okay. um, you can look at a rat hippocampus mm -hmm. and the anatomy and the function is pretty similar to a human hippocampus. So um, for some reason, biology worked out such that animal hippocampi are pretty mm -hmm. similar to human hippocampi, which is pretty neat, I think. And so you've You've done studies with animal models in the same way? Is uh, that right? Yeah, so I've also measured the chemistry of uh, mouse brains and from mouse hippocampus. Um, and Is this using the same sort of technique? Are you, are you yeah, putting exactly. mice into like teeny tiny little MRI and machines and like scanning the brains? They're not teeny tiny MRIs. Uh, they're still pretty big. Right. But yeah, it's, we have a small animal scanner, uh, okay. 9.4 Tesla animal scanner at Robarts. And we put the mice in there, and we can do the same measurements that we do in humans. So I can look at the glutamate concentration in mice um, from their hippocampus, and we can see if we see the same results. Um, and these mice are genetically modified to, you know, uh, um, to to display aspects of the Alzheimer's disease process. Oh, cool. And are these results sort of comparable? Are they supporting each other? I'm still analyzing the okay. mouse results at the moment, mm -hmm. um, but I hope that they're comparable. Oh, some fingers crossed. Yeah. Yep. Hey, Dixon, I just noticed you're wearing the a little ring on your little finger. Yes, I am. Is that... I think that's the engineering ring, isn't it? it that is the iron ring. You are yeah, correct. It is. Yeah, it <laughs> um, So I, I did engineering before deciding to dive into... Uh, 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 you know, MRI in medicine. Okay. <laughs> so, 
how did that happen as in how did you switch from engineer or why why did you switch from so what's interesting about research today is that a lot of it um tackles really difficult problems a lot of the low hanging fruit has already been plucked right so a lot of research is um is difficult and that requires people with different expertise and different skills um and what i found really interesting is that um my engineering skills i i did electrical engineering and biomedical engineering at mcmaster before this um and those skills and techniques and you know things like signal analysis mm-hmm. or um things like those were very relevant yeah, to your like electromagnetic yeah. physics okay. right like i i learned how radios worked and i learned how radar worked and a lot of that mathematics and that theory and those mm-hmm. physics are used to measure things with an mri and to analyze mri data so okay. i took that and i applied it in medicine and that's that's really really neat um and you know the collaboration between physicists and biologists and um engineers and um uh, physicians that sort of collaboration mm-hmm. is where new ideas are going to come from and how these difficult problems Definitely. like alzheimer's disease are going to be um solved so I thought that was really cool and I wanted to get my hands in on that so that's what I'm uh, that's what I'm doing now. Sounds really interesting and I'm I'm really curious to see where your research would go in the future. Yeah, thanks. All right, we're coming up to the end of our program, but before we let you go, um We here at Gradcast always like to appreciate that the fact that our graduate students here at Western are more than just simply students and have, you know, wonderful fulfilling lives outside of their work. <laughs> <laughs> so Dixon, um is there anything you like to do outside of all your research, all of your stuff like that? Yeah, um uh the one thing that, you know, keeps me sane mm-hmm. and keeps a a foot planted in the real world. um mm-hmm. is music i really like to write music and play music and i you know i do a little bit of singing i play piano i do some guitar um so um that's the thing that i like to do to help me distress that is really neat do you uh have anywhere where you do you like to share your music with other people um or is I, it still a personal thing uh it, it's uh, it's a personal thing mostly um and i've you know find it difficult to have time to uh record anything really um but uh you know I mainly play for myself or or I I play for my friends and things like that so All right so Dixon if anyone wanted to follow your work um you know see what sort of amazing developments you've been up to do you keep a presence on social media at all or a Twitter account Uh I have a pretty minor presence that I'm trying to you know work up a little bit um My Twitter handle is uh Dixon, so D I C K S O N W 11. Um and I also have a LinkedIn profile that you can probably find me on. Um so those are the two, you know, pieces of social media that I I run or try to run in my spare time which I don't have a lot of. <laughs> Awesome. Well, we'll have that information on our website once this podcast gets uh published. Uh Dixon, I want to thank you very much again for coming on to the show with us. It's been a stimulating conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. So this has been Gradcast with Navneet and Yemen. We are the official 
podcast and radio show of the Society of Graduate Students here at the University of Western Ontario. Catch us every Tuesday at 6 p.m. on CHRW Radio Western, or come to our website at gradcast.ca, where you can browse our archive of over 100 different episodes. And if you'd like to be part of the committee, if you'd like to come on and talk about your own work, or if you are just interested in GradCast in general, drop us a line at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Thank you and have a good night out there. The GradCast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.